Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our board president, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program. Working in the theatre brings together everyone, from performers and directors to playwrights and producers. It gives all of us a rare opportunity to see the people who create theatre engage in conversation with one another. With more than 850 guests during the 30 years that these programs have been on the air, working in the theatre allows all of us to hear from the people behind the characters, the stories, and the productions that draws each of us to the theatre. We hope you'll enjoy today's edition as we share yet another unprecedented forum for a meeting of theatrical minds. And we'll be back later to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for Working in the Theatre. For all the work you see on stage, there is a great deal of work behind the scenes in producers' offices across the country. Hello, I'm Gordon Cox from Variety for the American Theatre Wing, and joining me are four of the theatre's top producers. Roger Berlind, Margot Lyon, Jeffrey Richards, and Jeffrey Sell. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Gordon. It's common these days to hear theater people worry about the increasing commercialization of Broadway. And so just to begin, I just wanted to ask you um, as producers, do producers produce out of passion for an artistic project or out of commercial conviction these days? I, I, first of all, I find that hard to believe because if you go back in time to the age of the Ziegfeld Follies, where could you find more commercialization than back when they created the New Amsterdam Theater in 1905? Oh, I think it was 1915. The commercialization of Broadway is embedded in the nature of Broadway. Um, so I don't worry about the commercialization of Broadway. Do you, Roger? That's what we're in business for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's that great uh, Woody Allen quote: "If it if it were, uh, you know, if it weren't, uh, if it were all about art, it would be show art and not show business." Right. So I think that's you know, we have we have to. Uh, it's it's a business, right. commerce. But I think it's also very exciting when the unexpected becomes yes. commercial, and just as it's at the other direction, it becomes. Um, exciting, unfortunately, <laughs> when what you think is surefire commercially doesn't work. So, I mean, and you've been there, Jeffrey, certainly when you've had Avenue Q or Rent, those are unexpected. On the other hand, I think something like Hairspray, though it may not have initially been unexpected, Margot, it was perceived as, as something that really had extraordinary commercial possibilities at well, the beginning. Yeah. But only once people heard it. I mean, it wasn't as an idea conceived that way. And I, I actually don't think any really uh, uh, you know, outstanding work gets done that's originated by a producer or picked up by a producer unless it comes from a place of passion. I, don't, I think second guessing doesn't work. I think if, uh, there's that great story of a producer years ago who went out and surveyed uh, and all these people in New Jersey to find out what it was that made the perfect musical. And I think it was a mystery, and it was a love story mystery. And uh, she put everything together, and it didn't work. You can't do it that way. It has to. I, I always think that a, a show to work, somebody writing that show, hat or producing it or something, preferably writing it, has to has to write that show. There's coming from some place inside them that is very, very deep, 
something they have to express. In the case of Hairspray, I actually did it because I thought it would be, have good stock and amateur rights. I had no idea that I was going to do it at uh, New York Theatre Workshop following these guys. Right. And, um, you know, I thought it would be a sort of comedic, you know, notion like but not like not like rent but I mean for that kind of audience that's what Stock I think and amateur will have to wait. Stock <laughs> and amateur <laughs> will have to wait that's true. How do you balance though um, because you do have to think like business people um, and yet you also have have to have a passion for a project how do you how do you balance those two sides of your brain? I, 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 I want to go back a little bit in time for me because I started as a booker where my job was to um, take shows and book them in all of the primary and secondary markets across America. And sometimes those shows were easy shows because they had already won the Tony Award, like Crazy For You, for example. But sometimes we would literally, um, back in the late 80s and early 90s, have to think up revivals for the road because New York wasn't producing enough new musicals. So back then, we would literally just put on our commercial hat and say, what is going to sell well on the subscription series in Columbus. And I remember one year literally saying, Sound of Music hasn't been on the road in a long time, maybe a decade, and Marie Osmond sounds like she'll go great in that. That's putting on the commercial hat, and it fills a niche, because you already know you've sold 10,000 tickets in Columbus before you've even opened the door. That is a completely separate activity, I think, from what we do as producers when we make a new Broadway musical. Right. For me, when um, I was contemplating doing Rent. Number one, I didn't anticipate we would go to Broadway. And number two is, I just loved it. Mm -hmm. I had to do it because I loved it. And I never thought about who would come to see it, because I just figured, if I like it, hopefully other people will like it too. And the only person I can ultimately try to please is myself. Yes, I, I think exactly. that's, what yeah. it, that's absolutely yeah, true. I think, yeah. that, I think all of us yeah. start with that. We are turned on intellectually or emotionally, or somebody something grabs our funny bone, and we just have to make that happen. And the economic consequences, if we then sit down and say, how can we make this work? Is it possible to not lose a lot of money for everybody <laughs> if we do it wrong? And then we have a responsibility to make that vision or that passion turn into commercial success. And that's a difficult thing to accomplish. I don't think anybody does uh, produces unless they really believe in what they're producing, 100%, mm -hmm. all the way down the yeah. line. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have as much affection for uh, the play or musical that you do that doesn't succeed um, you know, as the ones that do succeed. Often. We've all been there. I, I think uh, yeah. probably... Roger and I, when you asked that question earlier, we worked on a show uh, a couple of years ago that we produced together called The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. And in actuality, I had um, met with the playwright, Herman Woke, two years before. And if anything seemed like it would be a commercial success or had the earmarks of a potential commercial success, it was that show. When I met with Herman, 12 Angry Men had not been done on Broadway. And I secured the rights. There hadn't been a courtroom drama done in a long time, I felt it had enormous appeal. We all did, and and we loved it. But you know, when you say uh, you know, that seemed like a very good commercial bet, yeah. and it turned out not to be. Yeah, I, I just don't think you can second guess it. I say that again. I mean, you just—that's the great thing about the theater. It's a surprise. I mean, you know, it's, it, 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 you just don't know. I mean, you don't. It's such alchemy to make the thing work. 
you know, I mean, you can have a collaboration that has been very successful for years and years and years, had many hits, put them together, yet again, it doesn't work. You can have a collaboration of people who don't know each other at all at the beginning, and magic happens. So you just don't know. And the timing also, I mean, I think if Hairspray had been done, you know, five years before, it probably wouldn't have been the success it was. I think it's uh, so much of it has to do with things that you can't predetermine. And that's why you have to have the passion for it. And so tell me, before we get too far in this discussion, actually, let's, I think a lot of people who aren't as familiar with the business side of, um, of the theater don't quite know what producing is. Like, what is it? What do you guys do with your days every day? How does a producer produce a show? I know I'd be very successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's all kinds, there you know, there are all kinds of uh, right. Tell me about that. ways that you can define producing. I mean, one is you see, you see something in a not-for-profit theater, you think it's great, it got great reviews, you pick it up, you move it, and your job there really is to raise money and to market and sell the show and to make any changes that, cast changes or, or uh, material changes that you feel are necessary. That's fun. That's not the kind that, that I particularly love, but that's okay. Then there are times when um, somebody, uh, artists can come to you with a project and you say, yes, I'd like to do this, um, and you put together the team, and then um, for me, the most fun is sitting in your room and coming up with an idea and then moving ahead. I couldn't it. agree with you more. I think the most mm -hmm. satisfying thing is to be the motivating force that makes a show happen because you have an idea and you want to put it together and you hire a writer, hire a director, and it's an arduous and much more difficult way to go and takes much more time, but if it works, you feel you've really done something creative. That's, as well as having that's a, the way the theater used to be yeah. when they used to produce up until I think everything changed in, in 1968 there was a watershed moment hmm. um, and that was when the Great White Hope came to Broadway and Arena Stage came to Broadway and for the first time it took a few years after that but the resident theaters in this country became you know um, directions in which commercial theater presenters would go but I don't think up until then, up until um, and that, that, that ignited something. And producers who used to conceive projects and go to writers, that was a moment where I think it changed for all of us. Except there are so many examples. Margot Lyon started Hairspray, had the idea of doing it, hired right. the people to put it together. Right. It's a producer-driven hit. And but that's, in, that that's very infrequent. I mean, Jeffrey mm -hmm. does it when he does shows like In the Heights mm -hmm. and, you know, Avenue Q and Rent. But it used to be that every year there were 25 or 30 productions that actually originated on Broadway with Broadway producers at the helm. And that did not come from, you know, theaters around the country. I think this is very healthy, by the way, but I also mm. wish there was well, more inspiration. Well, I think that Broadway. has to do with the economics, a lot of it, because things are so much more expensive. And also, I think, <clears throat> you know, theater has, hasn't been quite in the mainstream as it, as it was in the 40s, 50s, you know, um, even maybe in the 60s. I think what's very heartening to me is the number of young people who, we, we were seeing this great drain going to Hollywood, and I think now there are a lot of young people who are interested in producing, interested in writing for the theater, and it's very exciting, I think, mm -hmm. you know? So maybe we'll have more of that producer-driven. I recently, you know, I, I, I recently like, decided that I had to um, bring down to four steps the life of the producer and how we go through a show. So this is what I came up with. Pick the show, which is 
our aesthetic expression. Okay. okay, our ability to express ourselves, for the most part, happens with what material do we choose to do. That's right. And, you know, in my case, if you actually look at Rent, Avenue Q, and in the Heights, there is a through line that goes through mm -hmm. all of them. They're all contemporary. They all take place in New York City. Um, in the case of Avenue Q and Rent, they're all about young people trying to realize their dreams. To some degree, that influences in the Heights as well. We pick the play. We put together the creative team. It's very hard to sometimes answer that question to people when we say, well, we didn't write the play. I didn't direct the play. I'm not acting in the play. So what do you do? Because after we put all those people in the room together, our job is cheerleader, critic, motivator, uh, disciplinarian sometimes. Yeah, how hands-on are producers in terms of that, the creative depends. development? Yeah, it, it depends. depends. Some more than others. Tread lightly is you know, my rule of thumb. And uh, um, don't but get But you're very involved. Very involved. But if, you, if a producer gets too into the um, trees, they're not going to see the forest. Yes, I think that's You have exactly to trust right. the artists that you've made a commitment to. I think that's very important. But you also have to realize, you know, if something is not going in the right direction. Sometimes yeah. it's not correctable. <laughs> you're also running a business. It's like a startup in any area of activity. You have all of the problems that any other business has. You have to have a capital budget, an operating budget. You hire press. You hire an advertising agency. You have attorneys. You have contracts to deal with. And then, when the show is open, you have a business to run and to maximize the value of that business. And that's a continuous job. Mm -hmm. it, it involves. Uh, frequent and painful advertising meetings, uh, but you have to monitor every area of activity in a show. It's not as glamorous or as much fun as getting to opening night. That's right. And that's what I call right. number three, which is sell it. That's right. and, yeah. and sell it for me is from the beginning, whether it's selling it to an author to try to come on board to work on the show, and then selling it to our investors. You know, then we have right. to go out there. And what Roger and is saying, though, that with the business part of it, you do have a major obligation to your investors because if you don't return monies, uh, it's going to be very difficult to reapproach them. Right. Of right. course, you could have nine flops in a row, and you could say, I have this idea about Tom Hanks reading the telephone directory, <laughs> and you'd have no problem raising money. Speaking of raising money, who, who invests? Where do you get your investors? Who do you call when that? People who can afford to lose it. People in, in companies. I mean, you know, I have, I have. A, I mean, everybody has their own way of raising money. But you know, certainly there are entertainment companies that have interests, whether they have they own the underlying rights, like movie studios or used to be recording studios, but that doesn't really happen anymore. But maybe some industry that has or corporation that has any, a kind of secondary interest in it. Also, individuals who really can take a flyer. And I always say to people, look. You know, I think this is great. I think it's going to be a big hit. But you know what? Nothing is guaranteed. 20% of them return their money. If you can't lose it, don't do it. But I'm really excited about it. And um, you know, that's the way I raise money. Other people don't ever discuss the downside. But I feel uncomfortable doing that. So you know. The disclosure section of an offering document spells out every possible thing that can go wrong. Yeah, but along. they don't read those. You know, <laughs> their accountants read it. It's scarier than the scariest horror film if you look at it. And it's one in five that recoups. That's the, that's yeah. the statistic. But it's about the passion of the person selling it. It's like any business. You can, mm -hmm. if you, if you're passionate about it, and people believe it, 
and they want to put money in the, in the theater, they're going to put money in the theater. You know, I mean, I think that's what it is. It's you're selling yourself, really, mm -hmm. as much as an idea. You know, I think every producer has a different record. And uh, shows vary. Every show is a new entity, and it could make it or not based on a variety of factors that you can't anticipate. But I think it's a good business. Mm -hmm. And I think you can have a very successful career producing if you keep your wits about you. You never know what will um, strike the imagination of the audience. Yeah. You know, there is something that can come completely out of the blue, and you you, you know you capture lightning in a bottle in that one moment, um, and it may not even be that good. But and it, it isn't just the audience. It's also, as I said, the timing of the, the moment. Timing. You know, I mean, look at something like Angels in America, which is, you know, it's a great, great play. But it just caught the, it just it was a perfect, perfect time. So it was, you know, an astounding piece of writing that was supported by the press um, that revealed something, you know, critical, created a kind of discussion in the culture that was critical at the moment. And, and it worked, and it was commercially yes, successful. Yes, but it could have had the most extraordinary reception, but if audiences hadn't embraced it, That's if right. the word of mouth hadn't been very positive right. for it, if people hadn't gone out talking about it, it still would have had a limited engagement, because no matter what the influence of the media, it's finally the person who's going to be, you know, putting down money and going to see the show that determines its ultimate commercial well, success. Well, that's right. And, and I think that we would probably all agree that the thing with without which you cannot have a success is something, is a show that, the show has to move an audience. In commercial theater, you know, aesthetics are wonderful, intellectual ideas are, are provocative, terrific, we love to have them in, in the theater, but for a long-running show where you have to fill, you know, 1,200, 1,800 seats, whatever it is, you've got to move people right here, otherwise it doesn't work. And that, that is, that is one of the Or you have to things. move them with the artistry of the production. Yeah, but the art only goes so far. Right, but I, th I deal a lot here. with limited engagements, and so we did Glen Gary, Glen Ross, which I thought was, uh, you know, I'm subjective, I thought it was a brilliant production, and I think it's a great play. It but is. it doesn't move people the way that you're saying. I, it would well, have it's had not a sentimental moving, no, but it moves no. people. It's, well, by it's, it's powerful. Artistry. It's Most powerful, yeah, emotionally. I, but I, I'm going to challenge you on that, Jeffrey, because I was a big fan of that production, and I did find myself completely emotionally engaged with the downfall of Alan Alda's character. Great. No, the I would agree was, with that, but, but a lot was, of people... But is that character, and I'm sorry I forgot the name of the character, Shelley was coming Levine. apart at the oh, seams. Yes, yeah. right. yes it's it, very moving. It was right. moving. Yeah. Well, no, I'm like, glad that you found that a lot of people necessarily didn't find that, but that was, you know, one of the strong points I felt of the production. It's also why it was, it was a casting. nice compliment to Death of a Salesman, which people did comment on, because it was, as far as I was concerned, yeah. you know, the first half of the century had Death of a Salesman, the second half of the century had Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Right. That's interesting. That's an interesting mm -hmm. comparison. Yeah. I just want to go back on something Jeffrey said, because if you do look at the series of shows that people have done, it will tell you a lot about who they are. I always do shows about outsiders, forever. I've been doing shows about outsiders. And um, because I grew up in a situation where I was sort of an outsider. So I think that um, it's, it, producing, a lot of people think it's just not a creative <laughs> exercise. But it is. It's, I think for people who've made a life you of it. You discover a side of it, yourself. It is. And, and it, is, it is our way. I mean, I wanted to be an actress. You were going to be a composer, right? I don't know. You were probably going to be a performer, right? I don't know about you guys. But we didn't journalist. make it. Or we didn't go for that. We went for something else, but we're doing it as producers. How do you 
as a young producer, how do you get started? I always say don't go into, you know, have another job unless you have a trust fund. Because really, you can't make, you, you can't, ca I know you can make a good living, but I wouldn't want to rely on it at the beginning. I mean, you mm -hmm. need to have something else going for you. And then I think I always encourage young people to, you know, get to know young writers, get to know young composers, build a network. Now, the theater is, is like any other business. I mean, it's a family, and you, these young people who come up, they have friends who write, they have friends who act, and they, they, they start with readings and very small productions, you know, showcase productions, and that's the way you come up. So I think you start, you know, by coming in at your age level, if you can, and, um, you know, seeing stuff, seeing material that you like, you know, going out, getting it on, getting a reading, getting people there. It's hard. I mean, the first reading... I remember when I was doing what became Jelly's Last Jam, and, and I was, you know, nobody knew who I was. It was 1985, and I did, because I had a partner, Pam Coslow, who was Gregory Hines' wife, we managed to get people to come to these presentations that we gave down at 890. But the first three, nobody came. Everybody sent their, you know, fourth <laughs> assistant and, you know, or latest intern, you know. And it wasn't until it sort of got out that, you know, it was, it was sort of a fun thing to see that people came. And uh, so you have to, you know, you have to stick mm -hmm. to it and you have to... 1985 <laughs> was when you had your first reading, so it took seven years. It I took mean. 11 years from the time I had the idea. Which was in the 1980. It was 1980. Wow. A lot of people notice, um, you know, in the old days, it was David Merrick Presents... <laughs> name of show, um, and now it's not uncommon to see five names, or ten, or fifteen, or twenty. Or you know, 20, it keeps yeah. going up. Uh, thirty-five or thirty-five um, <laughs> names listed as producers above the title. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what uh, contributes to this trend, and does it? Do you feel like it diminishes e economics? Money. When I was uh, really um, a press agent. In 1978, a play opened called Death Trap. There were just two producers above the title, Roger L. Stevens and Alfred Deliagra. And the reason why is it was a $200,000 production. That's how much it cost. Uh, today, I think that if they were doing it, it would be a $2.5 million production. And they would probably be asking people at this table to join them. When we started, our shows were less expensive. Rent was three and a half million dollars. So there were only, you know, Kevin and Alan and myself in the Theater Workshop. Um, Avenue Q was exactly the same way, so we were able to keep a very small number of names above the title. Um, it's just a function of money. And, uh, you know, at this point, what I try to think about in my mind is that, you know, this is a perhaps uh, splitting hairs, but the producer of the show is the general partner. It's the person who has to write the check if you go over budget. There will be many people above the title, and, um, and uh, it's, it, it's what we have to do. But if you want to know who the producer is, it's the, the general person. partner. It's the also person who has to write circumstances where priority loans will be required of shows, and everybody above the title will contribute. But if you close the show with a million dollar they don't deficit, do, it has to be voluntarily. Uh, right. Stage left, exit. Right. <laughs> yeah, but it's also where, I mean, uh, the truth is there is one person, or in the case of someone like you who has a, a partner, it, two of you, but I mean, it's, it's, there is one 
entity where the buck stops. I, and I'm talking not, not, not necessarily financially, but uh, if you can avoid that, that would be best. But creatively, I mean, what I try and do is to have a team of people who, that all the co-producers who have, who have taken the risk with me feel that, you know, they can uh, be part of the process. But finally, if I've originated the show, if it was my idea, those ideas that people have creatively come to me and I will give them to the director. Because I don't, you don't want, I mean, there are those famous stories of people, you know, in theaters, you know, telling that, you know, I'm the third girl from the right, I don't like, you know, their <laughs> stockings by, you know, their pantyhose by William or something like that. They've got too many sparkles. You just don't want that happening. It can, I mean, I remember, again, when I did a show, when I did Jelly, I got a letter, a very long letter from uh, a major investor and above title producer, and it was very long about how you know inept George Wolf was. And finally, she just said, you know, more tap, less crap. And I thought, you know, <laughs> this is just like not what I want in the theater, you know. And she's a very nice person, you know. Actually, I, it's just a great line. I sort it's of love it. Line, it's a great it line because it sort of encapsulates what you're dealing with when you're at those moments. Right. <laughs> And we put more tap in, I yeah. want to say. We, Kevin and I have a joke, which is that if you want to know how much the show cost, just multiply the number of producers by a million dollars on a musical. Yes. Right. So if there's, if there's <laughs> ten names above the title, it's a ten million dollar musical. That's, that's and a, just go up from that's there. That's a good equation. <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. And actually, let's talk a little bit about the spiraling production costs. What, what contributes? What are the factors that contribute to the, the costs going up? The cost of advertising is a major factor. And it's going up every year, uh, dramatically. But also, until 1970, until 1972 or 73, there was no um, commitment to do advertising on television. The Pippin, I think, changed the mm -hmm. whole face of advertising in the theater. And with that successful uh, spot, um, that, what was it, one minute? And, yeah, uh, 119 a, minutes more if you go to the imperial theater. It was a brilliant message. A brilliant spot, but it saved Pippin. Pippin was doing well, but not very well. Pippin went from doing well to selling out and became, it played five years. When you do a television commercial, it can cost up to a million dollars. Yeah, but it's it? also labor. I mean, oh, for sure. It's load-ins. So. Load-ins mm -hmm. now for musicals are a million dollars. I mean, you know, it's, 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 Ridiculous. I mean, putting aside, I don't know if you guys have been going through this, but putting aside money for closing costs. Oh, yeah. Well, you do that every budget, week. Yeah, that's, really. That's a budget I mean, item every week. But, it's incredible. It's just getting But don't you find you know, at least 25% of your budget is advertising? Yes. Mm -hmm. but, but in the production budget, right. I think the physical productions have really uh, escalated. And, and I'm not sure the way I feel about all this because in the end, theater, successful theater is, is as much about the imagination of the, of the audience member as it is. I mean, you want to have something that's obviously exciting and, and um, enjoyable for, and surprising for the audience if you can right. physically. If people come but, out talking about the sets and the costumes yeah, and the lighting, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I think that's, that's absolutely true. I, I, I want to add something to that um, conversation about the money. You know, the, 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 at the end of the day, Theater, like college, like healthcare, is a labor-intensive business. Any um, business that's driven by labor is always going to go up at a rate that's greater than the rate of inflation. It's because there are so many people, and we can't ever get scale of technology. We can never replace the people with computers, with robots, with other yeah, um, uh, um, machines that will make um, it cheaper to make it. So a television set every year, the price goes down. A computer every year, 
it goes down. Theater every year, it goes up. And it's all because it's labor. But you know what? I find myself not wanting to like, you know, it's getting more expensive, yes. Um, when I came to New York in 1986, you couldn't get a show capitalized. If you just look at the number of shows that were going on in that era, you could barely get two shows who were still running at the time of the Tonys who would be nominated for Best Musical back then. Well, Here's yeah, my okay. point, that <laughs> though the costs continue to go <laughs> okay. up, more money has come into Broadway than there has in 20, 25 years. Why, why is that? Tell me. I think Broadway has become an exciting place. It's become an exciting okay. playground both for the audience members mm -hmm. and for people with capital. You know, if you look at the macroeconomic situation of this country, the amount of capital that has built up in the last 25 years is extraordinary, and there has been an enormous boon to Broadway as a result of it, which is that many people who have earned enormous amounts of money in other businesses have desired to express that money on Broadway, and there has been a lot of good as a result of it. There's, there's a fascination with producing in the theater and with Broadway. And you know, at the age of 40, let's say, you can't become a rocket engineer, you can't become a physicist, you're not going to go to med school. Um, you know, there are a lot of you know, professional areas that are closed uh, to you. But if you're 40 and you've had a background in English and you've had maybe been an English major, you've had an appreciation of the arts and you've been going to movies, you've been going to plays, and you suddenly find that you want to explore a different avenue in your life, you, many people decide they want to become producers and use their capital to do that and to explore their interests in that regard. It, there's ease of entry in our business. All you have to do is have a card printed. That's right. And you're a producer. <laughs> That's right. right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, there's no training required. It's very helpful if you have it. It would be very useful if you worked in a general manager's office for several years to understand the business and, and the, at it from the ground up. Or be a press agent, top press agent for many, many years, as Jeffrey right. was. Uh, but there are a lot of people coming in from other areas of activity who find this rewarding commercially, successfully, uh, and, and artistically. They, they get turned on by theater Remember as the, well as should. The generation of the they baby boomers was, I mean, beginning like in the mid to late 60s, was when the explosion happened on colleges. I mean, you know, it became automatic that people were going from high school to colleges. And I think that the influence of the arts on campuses beginning then with a whole new generation, there hadn't been that amount of individuals going to schools. Uh, they were inspired by a lot of what they read and what they saw that that generation, and when they came to you know certain degrees of affluence, um, they decided that it would be great to be involved in the arts, whether it was theater, whether it was film, whether it was television, um, and music, whatever. And they either became patrons or they became producers. But also to go back to the money issue, I think that um, you know how much things are costing. Yeah. The thing about the theater is. It's always there's no, it's, it's not prescriptive. I mean, we've had we had a show this year that's up, um, that a couple of shows that cost an enormous amount of money. That does not secure a hit, 
I mean, that isn't, and, and it's, 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 it's a, I mean, I guess the same in film, too, but, but um, the, the thing about the theater is you just, and as, as Roger says, the entry is easy. You don't know what's going to make it. You know, some newcomer who has an idea that brings some young people in, who, you know, people haven't heard of, can be a huge, that can be a huge hit. Some show that has everything going for it cannot be a huge hit. And the other thing I want to say is in, in, in a time where more and more is uh, entertainment is electronic, is not, you know, firsthand, um, is not live, I think the theater is going to have a greater and greater position in the culture because it's one of the last places left where you actually can see people live, where you can see things happen that, that, that no one can predetermine, you know? And uh, I think it's, and it's a communal experience, which I think is important. And as screens get bigger and bigger at home, you know, fewer and fewer people are going to go to movie theaters, maybe. And, uh, you know, or they're playing video games. The other thing is, is an immense amount of interest in theater on campuses all over the country. I think it's been a tremendous increase in the number of theater majors or yes. people who are engineers and take courses in theater uh, across the country. Is that true? Oh, I mean, I, I didn't absolutely. even know that. Absolutely. I think from and my experience... And there's also been an explosion of successful theater. resident theaters throughout the country. Yes. Right. And there's live theater in every hamlet in this, in this yeah. country. Uh, Everybody wants to show off. <laughs> yeah. This is the thing. Everybody wants to be a show off. But I'd like to say here also, I think some... We need to give some credit, credit to Disney because I think a lot of these young kids, I mean, I see this now with Hairspray. I'm sure you guys see it with your shows. These, I don't remember this 15 years ago, kids crowding the stage doors afterwards. It's like what I imagine 1945 was like. You know, they're all there with their autographs. They want autographs. Mm. They're excited, you know. And I think a lot of them grew up with The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and things like this, and they're, you know, they're interested. Broadway has become um, international and national, and uh, I, I, you know, with the and with that tourist base. When I was growing up, My Fair Lady became the longest-running show. It played six years. This you know, year, a, in particular, tourism is important because of the uh, weakness of the dollar. Yeah. Right. I mean, we expect um, an enormous summer. Yeah. Let us pray. It'd be interesting to see how that's affected. You probably know these things. How that's affected shows because cer certain shows are just not, you know, going to attract tourists if they're if they're text heavy, if they're plays. I think it's much harder if they're musicals that are particularly American. I think the I think long run harder. phenomenon, because I, I I like to work particularly in the arena of plays, is we need more theaters because um, theaters that used to be you know, solely designated, as it were, for straight plays. No, you know, the Belasco is passing strange. The Golden has Avenue Q. Brooks Atkinson um, Greece. has a Greece. Greece. Um, the Walter Kerr, which had Angels in America, it's has catered a catered affair. Right. Um, these are all playhouses that mm -hmm. were for plays. The Schoenfeld, which has you know, a chorus line. It's so the great impressed that you can remember all the names what? of these theaters. No, but I'll tell you, it was an irony in, in, in three years they ago. They changed their names so much. I, um, I, when I produced uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and it followed Night Mother into the Jacobs Theater. And um, previously in 1984, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross had followed Night Mother into the John Golden Theater, where Avenue Q was playing, and you know, Avenue Q has been there for about five years now, and will probably be there for another five years. I wish you that. <laughs> but 
what what has happened is it's diminished um, the ability to present straight plays on Broadway. Um, Spring Awakening, which I'm fortunate enough to do, is with Ira Pittleman and Tom Hulse and, and my partner Jerry Frankel. It's at the Eugene O'Neill. That was the home for the successful revival of Death of a Salesman. salesman yeah. It's taken a straight play theater off the block. I think the what's interesting to contemplate is what's going to, or challenging, what's going to be the future of straight plays on Broadway. I mean, I've always thought it should be limited runs, basically. I mean, occasionally you have an August Osage County or a Doubt or Proof, but more and more it's, you know, a four-month run or something like that, you know, and... But and yes, you have to go all the way oh. back to the place in the 30s, like Life with Father, which ran for, was the longest-running play for, for a period of time. But in, in, the, in this era, I mean, you've had, you know, with Proof and Doubt and Tale of the Allergist Wife, there have been long But those running. are, what it was that, was Proof two years? The run on Broadway, yeah. uh, just just about almost two years, and, and that was a very a, successful tour as well. Yeah, but that was a record breaker. I mean, yeah, two years was. for a straight play yeah, is, is huge now. But that's always been, you know, yeah. since the '60s, that's always been with the, you know, a long run on Broadway. The Odd Couple didn't even play two years. I know, but mm. I think the economics have to change to fit the situation. Sure. You know, I, th I think you have to be able but to get out in 16. Yes, weeks. but the quick rewards of a straight play yes, are not to be underestimated. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> yes, I know, but you were... Anyway. But frequently you can't keep actors in the same job for more than a, a limited run, particularly That's right. imports from London. But I'm going to play the devil's a, advocate to that. I mean, doing, doing the 16-week the straight play that can make its money back and make a modest profit is great. Right. But, but none of us could pay our mortgage no. And pay for our families producing that. But kind you're not going to be able to do that with so a straight play. So it's a good. So my right. point of it is, it's a good hobby, but no, you can't make a living from it. No. I <laughs> thought that if you could put together a series during a year, you know, if you were a producer mm -hmm. and you had four straight plays that ran, you know, sixteen weeks or well, something like three that. We, we put a series together, that, and that was one of the unexpected surprises. The one that was we thought needed the most help needed the least help. That was well, August, that, yeah, which so was, um, you know, a wonderful miracle surprise. Miracle theater. But, you know, we didn't do August. I think August just fell in love with the play. It's when you have a passion uh, and, and everything just seems to go right. And then, as I say, you capture lightning in a, in a bottle. And... Um, and, and it just took off. On the other hand, at the same time, I, I had a play this year that I particularly loved because I worked on it when I was a kid in, in high school at Alex Cohn's office. It's called The Homecoming. All the elements came together, you know, terrifically. Everybody mm -hmm. talks about the ensemble of uh, August Osage County deservedly because of Steppenwolf. But we had six actors who had never worked together before, three Brits, three Americans. They just won an award from the Drama Desk for Ensemble, which they richly deserve. Congratulations. And the, the homecoming, all the elements came together terrifically, same way. Audiences did not want that play. Mm -hmm. No. So again, you know, uh, but if they had, you know, I would have had a threesome this year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the sort of increasing relationship uh, of Broadway to television. Um, the uses of television in terms of like their American Idol alumni who show up on Broadway with sort of greater frequency. There's, now there was a, um, there was a Grease, uh, a reality casting mm -hmm. show for Grease and there's yeah, an there's upcoming one, one for, for Legally Blonde, Blonde. exactly. Yeah. Um, what's the sort of impetus behind that and what are we learning, do you think? I'm learning that I've been, I'm over the hill and I've been around too long. 
because <laughs> I don't watch those shows, and I'm going to lose out to more adventurous young producers. You have an expanded audience base automatically. I mean, Greece, I think, did not receive you know, the favorable reception they hoped they would, but they had, because of their reality show, they had an enormous advance, and audiences um, gravitated towards it. I think people actually, the more familiar they are with something, the more they want to come. Uh, the movie of Hairspray gave us an entire new life. Yes, familiarity and, uh, breeds and content. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right. I mean, I think it may show something about a little bit of a lack of imagination or diminishment of imagination in the culture. I don't know. But whatever it is, the more people know about something, the more familiar they are with it, the more they want to come and see it. And I think these two, in casting, I know, with, with uh, Hairspray, which has been my longest running musical, you know, we did it with Wedding Singer, too. You know, we went, we went to American Idol because that brings an audience with it. And that's, as Jeffrey said, trying to track But I think when, when Roger does something like Is He Dead or Proof or when you do something like Jelly's Last Jam or when you um, do something like Radio Golf or when you do something like In the Heights Avenue Q or Rent, these are originals. And what I really find dismaying is, you know, the fact that the theater has become, I mean, this is part of Disneyfication too, you know, a home to Brains. the fact of a lack of originality, but the adaptation of films to stage and to musicals. It happens more and more because there's a built-in audience that knows the title no, Legally I don't think Blonde that's the reason. I think it's because Frank that's where the stories are. People have always adapted stories. They adapted plays. They, you know, they but adapted not, short but stories. But not at the... Isn't it more exciting to start from scratch? Scratch. I mean, there hasn't been as much a reliance on movie titles. Not and maybe it will happen in television. Maybe we'll have musicals. We are going to have a musical of Happy Days. West Side Story was original. It was based on, it was oh, suggested it's based on by Romeo and Juliet. It was suggested by, it was an original book. It was suggested well, by know, Romeo and Juliet. I don't Juliet. like the word original because I think you always start over. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Hairspray is very different from the movie. From Alan J. Lerner in his autobiography says, you know, it's hard enough to write a musical. Find a story that exists already. And I actually well, believe that's in that. That's a shortcut. But uh, the, I guess the only but one look I can think his. of that I've done recently was Curtains. Curtains started from scratch, based on nothing at all, developed over a period of several years. <laughs> Many years. <laughs> but what we came up with was something that had never been seen before, heard before, and was not based on anything except the creativity of the team. And that's what the theater used to be producing, and the theater used to be. But look at Spring Awakening. You couldn't be more creative than that. But it's based, it's based on a play. A lot of musicals were based on books and plays that's at right. a certain time. It but did that's not where the come, stories were. Right, but they didn't come from, let's say, the proliferation this year where you look at the nominees for an organization like the Outer Critics. All the four musicals that are nominated are derived from films. But that's where the stories are. People go to stories. I'm not uh, saying that that necessarily works, and a lot of the movies don't. I think two of the most exciting shows this season are not based on those Passing Strange and In the Heights. Original. I know, but I don't. Th mm -hmm. Well, I disagree. I think these are original. I, I think you know. I, th I think that the characters, the outlines of the characters, may come from another form, but but the way they're expressed, interpreted, uh, finally imagined on stage, should be. Different from the from the film version. Well, it would but have to be a, and a lot different because I think I think the record would show that what works in one medium That's doesn't right. necessarily work in another, 
and you run a major risk of, of hurting yourself by relying on a title that doesn't work on stage. Gone with the Wind has been tried a lot, and it's now a, a major failure in London. Uh, pretty good title, pretty good background. And, uh, Book sold a lot of copies. Sold a lot of <laughs> copies of the book. Greatest, <laughs> it has the highest sales, more copies than anything yeah, like except the Bible. The Bible. Or I think no. it's right yeah. under the Bible. Uh, well, the, I, I think at the, at the end of the day, it, it almost doesn't matter. You know, I, of, of all the musicals I've done, I've done one based on a movie and novel called High Fidelity, and of course <laughs> it's my biggest flop, Roger, and it lost it was, its entire investment. But it, but it was really good. And closed in 10 days. <laughs> well, I'll take the movie if it's a successful adaptation like Hairspray, and I'll take um, the absolutely original show like Avenue Q that was an expression of those ingenious I just there authors. I wish there were more original musicals being written because there are a lot of gifted young composers and lyricists out there. And I think we see with the New York Music Theater Festival that there are ideas and they just... I Listen, think they I, I feel, Jeffrey and Roger, that it is very hard for writers to create, writers in the theater, even playwrights, to create the kind of tight, um, well-crafted structure that you need uh, for a book of a musical without some underlying notion, I mean, a structure. Because I just, I just don't feel that, I, I don't know. I would agree. I don't think a, a musical can, can succeed without having a strong libretto. I mean, and, you know, the book writer is always most shortchanged when it comes to he's always blamed or she's always blamed yes, and never given the credit. The or never given the, the credit. Tell me about how the internet has, how you think the internet um, has affected uh, Broadway, not only the business of Broadway, but also the process of well, it. You, you, you use that very well. I have to say, I'm not even that interested in the internet. I mean, it's it, as a sales tool, it's becoming more effective for us every day. The truth of it is, is that when we advertise, even on television, which is grossly expensive, you know, when we, we you know, we make a TV spot, it costs two to four hundred thousand dollars. In the case of uh, in the Heights, it was three fifty. Then to buy the TV time, you're going to spend another three fifty. Yeah. So you're up to seven hundred. And we put the TV spot on in the metropolitan New York area, which has about 12 million people. And of those 12 million people, there are only about a million two of them that would ever consider going to a Broadway musical. So um, it is so inefficient. It means that we are literally saying, we know that 90% of that money is going down the drain before we even start, but it's the best we've got. Now, if we can continue to use the internet to find tourists who are coming to New York City and using um, the different travel sites um, so that we can really start to target those audience members who are, or I'm sorry, those tourists who are potential audience members, then we can be more efficient and use our dollars in a much better way. Because uh, as I also just mentioned, we do that TV commercial in New York we're also doing it to that 1.2 million people that also mm. represents 15% of our audience because 65% of our audience is from out of New York and we don't have any efficient way. So I think that our advertising tools through the internet are going to continue to get better and better and better every day. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. all of our television commercials are now on YouTube or, and on the internet. But it's, too, but it's too expensive. I mean, one thing you, you learn is you don't try and sell to people who don't 
come to theater. You got to sell your target audience. That's a, you know, I always love it. I, I'm sure you've all experienced this with a new show, and you have a new producer who's come in, and they say, "But this time we're going to bring in." This is what happened to me with Wedding Singer. We're going to bring in the guys at 35 years old. I said, you oh. know, they don't go to theater. They don't, you know, their wives tell them what to go to if they go at all, you know. High fidelity. And yeah, same deal. Speaking, same year. Speaking of right? inefficient advertising, I think the New York Times is money down the drain yes, for the most part. I do too. And so I think the internet is going to be, you can target. You get your lists, you can target. I mean, not to bring up something political, but. Uh, when you see how effectively the Obama campaign has used the internet, I mean, it has revolutionized uh, uh, presidential campaigns, political campaigns, and I think we are, you know, we are moving yeah, much yeah, more towards Facebook that. and MySpace One and million YouTube, right? Million Largely five. Of the internet. Million right. five. It's extraordinary. Do right. you want to talk about the, the chat rooms? Right. That's my next no, question. But, but, but Jeffrey, just one thing: Facebook and YouTube and um, MySpace, and they have been especially effective for Spring Awakening, and with the people who you know go in, into those areas, it, it's been a boon for young people coming. I'm sure that you would have probably had the same experience if rent was opening today. Yeah, mm -hmm. they, they ultimately rent um, wound up catching on with all right. of those things. Yeah. It just came a little bit later, but here we have these young people doing our job for That's us. Right. That's a good thing. Yeah, that it's, is good. It's a really good but we also, thing. of course, have all that chat. What do you think about that, Jeff? What, does that <laughs> has that affected your development that. process as the producer, as as the sort of all that chat? Yeah, well, no, the I sort hope of not. the <laughs> sort of um, I mean, how much do you pay attention to the sort of internet gossip, and do you Ugh. does it at all? I They're think all I'm going to hire two you. people just to write positive things, and I want them in different names on in the in the chat rooms. I think the chat rooms, um, unfortunately. Um, are getting gaining more credibility with a core audience that knows about them. Do you them. think so? Yes, I, I, I don't do. pay attention to them at all anymore. No, I, I think with theater goers who buy, some theater goers who buy tickets. You know, one thing we haven't talked about at all is word of mouth, because in the yes. end, that is the only thing that makes a show work. You know, we can spend whatever we want on television, on the internet, whatever innovative ideas we have, and, you know, it's something that you really, each time out, you try and you try and say, well, it's not really true. If I just last, you know, this much, you know, if I just do this and I last that long, I now have a kind of position that after 70,000 or 80,000 people have seen a show, if it's not working, it's never going to work. I mean, that's really my... Mm -hmm. Now, there are, the only exception to that is shows that are daring new shows like, you know, like Spring Waking, I would take. I don't, I don't know where, how, how you were doing after 70 or 80... A thousand people saw it, but but I think then a, a slew of Tony Awards at that point can can put you into. I, I think we were helped by the fact that the media embraced Spring Awakening, and and then it took off after opening solidly, and then more spectacularly after, after the, Tony the award recognition. And I would imagine you. I, I always comforted myself with the Avenue Q stories of that it took you a while to build. Well, Avenue Q genuinely uh, opened um, on the 1st of August of its year, and it did 70% business at the John Golden Theater, which only has 796 seats, um, for the next 10 months. Yeah. And you know, we didn't have a TV commercial. We didn't know how to advertise. And I thought, you know, we're just going to have to be patient 
and be brave and let word of mouth catch on. And we genuinely did 70% business. We chose not to go to the booth. Tony. And then we won the Tony, and then we were selling out. And word well, of mouth. What, what, I mean, what is, it took how that do you show define word of mouth? Who knows what that is? Every show oh, I, I know says, here's that word of mouth is really good, and that's going to save us. Every show. And uh, because the creative people and the producers believe in it. That's why they did it in yeah, the first place. Yeah, but you see it at the box office, and, Roger. Well, you see they're either coming or they're not that's coming. That's right. But uh -oh. word of mouth is, an, is an indefinable. But that's what makes them it has, come. You have to have enough people who have seen it. Who and tell are moved by it. That's right. And that's what I always say, 70, 70 to 100,000 people. Then after well, that's a good number, okay. Yeah. But you know, a I lot don't. of shows would just be happy to get 70,000 people, <laughs> period. <laughs> well, I know, but if it's, not, if it's not breaking, if you're not making money after that, I think there's something, you know, they're telling you something, unless you get a slew of awards that you didn't mm. expect. But I can remember when curtains opened, for example, um, saying to Daryl, and I probably said it to you, this is going to have a nice run because it, it, it was very pleasing to people who go to theater yeah. regularly. Whatever it is, whatever word of mouth is, that's why curtains are still running. That's right. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I mean, last year's most acclaimed revival was Journey's End. And they could not find an audience because I think the subject matter ultimately didn't appeal to people. The people who went to see it genuinely liked it. But I do think that, um, however, that word of mouth is conveyed is very important. They probably yeah, but then they said, oh, my God, it's really terrific. But God, I felt like hell when I got out of there. I mean, it was so moving, it was, but it was, it was made me wonderful feel so production. depressed. You it was know? A That's what I think people production. were saying. I loved it. Well, I, I, loved I, thought, it. I thought it's wonderful. But, I uh, did, too. I thought it was fantastic. And it moved you. It did. But all it, the things we say we need to yes. make theater work, that show had. And but? But there's no but. Word of mouth didn't happen because people prefer something less uh, difficult to deal with. Going forward, what do you think are the major issues that face theater producers as you plan to produce Broadway shows into the future? Uh, I only have one. Well, you what are. Is Real estate. Mm -hmm. It's harder than ever. Yeah. It's harder to get right. a theater, it's harder Absolutely. to make a deal, and the deals are getting harder. And quality. But that's in yeah, our control. No. Yes. So yeah, I, I take some comfort in that. I, I think yes. Creating the bottom line is harder and harder, simply because the costs keep going up, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't see an end to that. And I think we've reached a point where we cannot look to higher ticket prices to make up that difference. Uh, and I think that the industry has always been in peril. It just continues to be in peril, um, and will always be in peril. Back in 1950. Making that bottom line is very difficult. And in fact, if you look at these past couple of seasons, we have roughly the same amount of revenue this year as last year, maybe a slightly lower overall on Broadway. If you eliminate uh, the three monster hits, Wicked, Jersey Boys, Lion King, uh, that tells us that what's left is roughly, um, that's also roughly the same because those three have just sold mm -hmm. out all the way. Costs we know have gone up, and so somewhere that bottom line isn't working for all those other shows. And we have our own personal shows that we know about, but I think as an industry, uh, turning a profit is getting harder and harder. 
And, and just one last thing. I think yeah. because it's getting harder and harder, we get back to the creative side of things, which is going to, it may tend to make, could well tend to make producers more cautious, which means that they will go with more brand names, which means that we may not have as exciting work as we would like to have, although we will keep trying to However, I don't think the, the, the hit-to-flop ratio has changed that much no, over the decades. It's remained pretty constant. And I was going to say, like, there was a song from a, a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Me and Juliet, in 19... The early 50s called the, the theater is, is dying dead. the theater is dying the theater is you know practically, practically dead, dead. Right. and you know every year you or every decade you hear that lament and the theater continues to survive and I think continues to grow throughout the country um, and as Margot said earlier about the relationship and the fact that it is you know a personal and live experience it, it, it will continue to be here and it'll continue to have doomsayers for the next hundred years. Right. We'll all be around, of course. I think that's a great place to end. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Gordon Cox, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal form for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org.